0: Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. Today, I have Phil Goldberg, who many of you may know. He is the author of American Veda. And more recently, in 2020, he published a book that I saw is for $1.99 on Amazon called Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, Powerful Tools to Cultivate Calm, Clarity, and Courage. And interviewing Phil is so interesting, so fascinating, so many stories. It just made me realize how many people he had to talk to and interview and get to know in order to get the information for American Veda, which is like a history of how and why yoga came to the West. So looking at these authors like Thoreau and Emerson, and then looking at the way that it permeated into Christian religion through the unity churches and Christian science and science of mind, some of whom admitted that they were actually, you know, drawing from Indian philosophy, but a lot of them, even to this day, their members do not know That they're actually studying Indian philosophy. It's couched in Christianity. And for quite a while, I was experimenting with all these different world religions. And in my little town where I lived, there is a church that is a Christian science church. And I didn't understand at the time that it had roots of Vedanta. And I went in and I started listening to what they were saying and reading some of their materials. And I was like, wait a minute, this is Indian philosophy because I was heavily into Indian philosophy by this point. And so I would go into the leaders of the church and I would sit in their office and I would ask questions like, oh, have you ever heard of Vedanta? And um, no, no, we don't know anything about that. And I would try to gracefully and gently like say, hey, did you know this is actually from India? And there was no recognition. I really don't think they knew, and these were high up elders in the church. They really believed that it was something that came only from Christianity and the mystical powers of Jesus for healing. And so after some time when I couldn't really get any traction to be honest about what we were studying together in the book clubs, and the Sunday mornings, I just kind of slowly glided away because I didn't feel comfortable with that. And yet I will tell you, I loved A lot of what they were talking about, it really resonated with me. But I also felt that we needed to be honest about where we were getting this information or where it originally came from. So Phil and I had this great conversation about that. And then how did yoga come over with the gurus, the Swami Vivekanandas, the Yoganandas, the Swami Satchitananda at Woodstock? and then leading into the Beatles. I mean, it is really fascinating to see how Indian philosophy has permeated Western culture. And Phil takes a lot of care to talk about how yoga has adapted to meet the needs of the people so that it can have a powerful influence on our lives and we can suffer less and how it's only natural in the world and in biology and in nature that variations occur and yet make sure that we do care for the teachings and we are stewards of the teachings. Can we make sure that we're not culturally appropriating and that we are giving credit? So we have a really great conversation about that. Then I go into why. Why did this happen? Was there a vacuum in the U.S. where people were just hungry for something like this. If you go back to Thoreau and Emerson and the unity churches and this type of thing, like why did it blow up so big, so fast and continues to frankly. And what does that mean? why did we grab onto this so quickly and easily? And why are so many of us still so engaged in it? So I'm not going to tell you those answers. You have to listen to the whole podcast to hear that. And then our last little bit was about the future of yoga and yoga therapy and where is it headed in the future and maybe some ideas that Phil has but I agree with what he said and again I'll make you get all the way to the end to hear where he thinks it might be going in the future and I wholeheartedly agree with him. So I'm happy to share this episode with you. Phil is just a delight. He is so knowledgeable, compassionate, kind, intelligent, And he's done so much hard work for us in writing books like American Veda so that we can have that history of what actually happened and how yoga came to the West. So thank you, Phil. We all appreciate you using your life force to educate us both with the book and continuously. So welcome. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. The Yoga Therapy Hour is here to support you on your mental, emotional, and spiritual journey. We talk about things like nervous system regulation, spiritual connection, how to be more involved in your community, how to communicate well, how to manage your mental health. There are so many things that we are excited to share with you in season five of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. And we hope that you will share it with your friends, family, colleagues. All right, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour, Phil. We're so happy to have you today.
1: Good to be with you, Amy. Thanks for having me.
0: You're kind of a rock star in the yoga world, and I know you have your own podcast called Spirit Mm -hmm. Matters Podcast. I do. Yeah. So I was speaking with you just a few minutes ago, and you said one of your main missions at this stage of your life is to kind of preserve the integrity of yoga and the yoga tradition, especially in the Western world. So what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I, I wish I had the power to be the one to preserve the integrity. I just want to make whatever little contribution I have. You know, I've been a participant and a teacher and an observer and a writer about the transmission of yogic teachings into the West for more than 50 years if I have to give away my age and it's an inspiring story because the impact of these teachings gradually over time has really transformed the spiritual landscape of America And that's been a big focus of my work, to bring that out, to let people know how that happened, why it happened, and hopefully why it will continue to happen, because I think it's a very good thing (laughs) and significant. And the growth in popularity of yoga in the last 15, 20 years especially, has been a great blessing. It's furthered that process, that transmission that I talked about. But at the same time, because America has a way of doing these things, the emphasis on physical practice, on primarily asana, threatens to get to the point where yoga is synonymous with that. And I think there's large segments of the population for whom yoga means stretching and bending. and who value it or see it its main function as improving the health of the body and uh, helping with concerns of the body like flexibility, uh, weight loss, various health benefits. And this is a great thing. This is a blessing. And I have no problem with people who just want to do some asanas and improve their physical health and feel better and all that. My concern is that it will become reduced to that and the fullness of yoga as integral aspect of the teachings that come to us from India that are spiritual, psychological, and developmental by nature will get short shrift, be diluted. So I think it's terribly important to keep reminding us that the doorway into yoga might be for many people, or seems to be, physical concerns and physical practice. That's really traditionally just a small part of it. And there's much more to be gained. Yeah. That's a long answer to your question.
0: No, I love that. And so when you say that yoga has kind of permeated spiritual culture of America and then you said how it happened and why it happened I want to go into each of those a little bit. I know you have an entire book titled American Veda that is like an encyclopedia of information on how Oh,
1: encyclopedia sounds boring. Oh no, it's not. We won't, not, we won't not call it that.
0: Okay. <laughs> But if you were to kind of put it in a nutshell, how did it happen? How did we in America come to love the field of yoga so much?
1: You know, in the earliest expressions of this, the earliest transmission of ancient Indian wisdom into America, asana was not even part of the thinking. It just wasn't there. So if you go back, well, let's start it with the early 19th century. There were some people coming and going and and all that prior to that. But in the early 19th century, when English translations of some of the sacred texts of India, including the Buddhist texts, and the first translation of the Bhagavad Gita and all that, and Americans were going to especially Calcutta, and there was communication and a lot of trade. The British Empire did a lot of damage to the nation of India and the subcontinent. But at the same time, because they were interested in converting the Hindus, some of the uh, scholars there saw value in these ancient teachings and were enamored of them, and they wrote a very complimentary and respectful translations and commentaries. And those got into the hands of very influential people. And then they ended up in the hands of eminent Americans, most especially Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, the American transcendentalists. And their lives and work were deeply affected by their reading of these texts. Thoreau called himself a yogi. He wasn't doing asanas. There was no yoga studio in Concord, Massachusetts at the time. There was nothing except the books. And they got it. They got the spiritual message. It changed their lives. And by extension, it changed the lives of hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans who in turn were influenced by Emerson and Thoreau. And that was the kind of prototype. And then the texts affected the people who started the New Thought Movement, the Unity Churches that still exist today, the Science of Mind Movement, the Theosophists, all of those people. And then in 1893, a big turning point when the first of the major gurus came here, Swami Vivekananda, and he had a big impact. His Vedanta societies that he started, there's temples and centers in almost every major city in the U.S., and Swami is trained in India. India to come here and run them. And this has been going on for 120 years. And then Yogananda came Mm -hmm. in 1920 and had a huge impact. And then in the 60s and 70s, the huge wave of advent of the counterculture and mass media, jet travel, changes, immigration laws, a whole bunch of factors contributed prominent teachers from India and other parts of Asia, in the case of the Buddhists, reaching huge numbers of people at first, especially young people in the counterculture. You know, Swami Satchidananda opened the Woodstock Festival, and the Beatles went to India to be with uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and learn Transcendental Meditation. And those were enormous cultural upheavals. That led to people becoming interested in Indian philosophy, practices like meditation, especially, and also asana practice and pranayama, the full scope, depending on who the teacher was and what that teacher emphasized. But at first, it was mostly philosophical and meditative, and then later, teachers started to also include asana and other physical practices. And then that really hit the mark and overtook the emphasis on other things. All the lineages that are represented here in the U.S. that were started by gurus and then maintained by Americans who were trained by them, and now their second, third generation of leadership, they still teach the traditional meditation practices and the full repertoire. But in the public eye, yoga has come To mean a physical practice and also it's much more photogenic for one thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, can we go all the way back to where you started with Thoreau and Emerson and some of these kind of science of mind churches? Hmm. Are they publicly saying this is Indian philosophy? Because some of these science of mind churches that I've visited are kind of couching it in
1: Christianity. So yeah, 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 yeah. Well, this is very interesting, Amy. And we can use that as an example. But the larger framework is when something useful from another culture is adopted by people in America, or vice versa, for that matter, we take what's useful, we take what we like, and we adapt it to our own time, our own culture, our own values, our own needs, and that's how things change. That's why, you know, pizza is popular in America, and we have our own variations of it. Music, arts, all these things, fashions, technologies, they get traded. So spiritual teachings and health practices all go through the same thing. So the early New Thought people, Science of Mind, Unity, Christian Science, Mm -hmm. Theosophy, all these people, including Emerson and Thoreau, they took the teachings and adapted them to their own language, their own needs, and so forth. So you'll see in Emerson, for example, one of his great contributions is something he called the theory of compensation. It's all about karma. Mm -hmm. But he put it in his own language and his own uh, framework and so forth. And some people adopted teachings that they adapted from the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita, and then in wanting to bring these teachings into their constituents... They did things like, say, well, Americans like Sunday morning services. That's when they go to church. So let's present the... Even Yogananda did that. He started having Sunday morning satsangs. They called it services because that's what Americans do when they're interested in something spiritual. So they're adapted. And in certain parts of the country, it was obviously more (laughs) efficacious to... Sort of Christianize the language and de emphasize Indian origins and Indian terminology and so forth to reach more people. And, you know, there's often a fine line between a skillful adaptation into a new culture and a new time period in order to reach people and distorting it. So you have to take it on a case-by-case basis. I did a biography of Yogananda, and I learned a lot of things that are not in his autobiography of a yogi and all that. And one of the things you see is how he learned about America, and he changed the title of his public lectures. He changed the language. He changed the way the teachings are given out in order to adapt. But he was very mindful of not distorting the integrity of the teachings. You know, unfortunately, some people are less rigorous about that, and they don't mind the distortion if they get to reach more people and sell more things. (laughs) Or they're just, they're well-intentioned, but they don't do it skillfully. So this is just part of the interaction of cultures, and we have to be mindful of it, in my thought.
0: You know, as a young woman, I wandered into a church of Christian science and I started listening to what they were saying. And I thought, this is Indian philosophy. But to this day, I don't think anyone in that church knows that.
1: You're right about Christian science. In fact, Mary Baker Eddy, you know, her famous book, what is called the Sacred Text of Christian Science. The scholars told me that in the original, She actually quotes the Bhagavad Gita, and they were taken out. So Mm -hmm. that happens. And if you go to certain unity churches or science of mind places, you won't know there's any link to Indian philosophy. But if you listen to the message and you're Mm -hmm. familiar with Vedanta ideas and yogic philosophy and precepts, you see it. You see it in there. Now, I know, because I wrote about it and I researched it, the couple, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, started the Unity Churches that are very, very popular to this day. I often write for a Unity magazine. They consciously drew on Indian text. In the very early issues of that magazine, he explicitly says, We are turning to India because things are spiritually stale here. And the next phase of spiritual development, we will draw from India. And it was very deliberate, very conscious. Now, whether five, ten years later in their church in Nebraska or wherever, they would have said that is a different story. (laughs)
0: And how about Thoreau and Emerson? Were they open about it, or was it kind of...
1: If you look at their writing, as I said, Thoreau called himself a yogi. He writes in Walden about reading the Gita every day and speaks about it in the most sublime terms. Mm -hmm. So does Emerson at different times. And so they're very explicit about it. If you read a certain essay, you might not see that. You read another essay and you'll see it. But they were honest about it. They thought it was, you know, a wonderful development that access to these books and these texts. So did some of the European philosophers. Schopenhauer, the great German philosopher, said that access to the Upanishads was the great gift of that time period. There were, you know, physicists, Nobel Prize winning physicists. The movie Oppenheimer is out now. He was a big student of Bhagavad Gita and the Vedantic Literature, Schrodinger. So there were more people being influenced by these things than we realize. And a lot of them just sort of absorbed the ideas and it changed the way they saw the world, it changed the way they lived, and they went about their business. And others incorporated it into their disciplines and into their thinking. And expressed it in their own way, in their own terms. So people like Joseph Campbell, great popular philosopher, people like Alan Watts, Aldous Huxley, people like that in the mid 20th century were very explicit about drawing from the teachers they knew by then. Swamis were here and living here and so forth. But then if you read certain things, if you're sensitive to it, you could say, oh yeah, I could see that's where the influence is, but they don't necessarily say so in every sentence or every page.
0: And what about even scientists like Einstein and Tesla?
1: Tesla was a friend of Swami Vivekananda, and I've read quotes where he talks about what he's learned from him and uses certain Sanskrit terms like akasha and prana. And Vivekananda learned from Tesla. Teachers who came from the East, unlike certain aspects of Western religion, these people were not antagonistic to science. They saw their spiritual teachings as a science of consciousness, and they were open to science. They learned from science. They adapted to the scientific discoveries of the time. You see it in all of their work. So they learn from one another. I don't know about Einstein. There's people who debate how much he was affected by it. But some of his contemporaries like Oppenheimer and Heisenberg certainly were. And Einstein had their transcripts of conversations he had with the great Indian author, poet, educator, philosopher, Rabindranath Tagore, who was the first non-Western to win Nobel Prize for Literature. When he came to the U.S., he had meetings with Einstein. So, you know, Einstein might have been an I had heard
0: that. Time. I had read that about Tagore. Yeah. And what about even organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous? Again, I don't think they really talked about it, but the Bills, I think, were heavily <laughs> influenced by Vivekantham. Well,
1: Conta. so I gather. I learned more about that, actually, after I had written American Veto, because people said, Hey, you should have said more about Bill W., you know, and, you know, look at this reference and all that. But apparently, yeah, he was a student of these things and was influenced by it. And you get hints of it.
0: I think it's yeah. obvious when I look at the steps of A, it's like that makes so much sense.
1: Yeah. Some people say, Oh, no, he was onto that. And then he, you never know. And sometimes it's secondhand influence because he might have been influenced by some of the new thought people who in turn had been influenced by the Indian spiritual teachings. That happens a lot.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it was called know. the Oxford group, that a group of them would get together and and talk about these things. So who knows who came to that group. and Yeah, day. and
1: they were in New York and New York environs, So, you know, it would have been plenty of people there who could have contributed in that way. But that's what happens. I mean, look, there's ordinary people in America who might have been taught certain things by their psychotherapist and it changed their life and changed their outlook. And they don't necessarily know that the psychotherapist as a 20 year old was a disciple of guru so-and-so and and, you know lived in an ashram and then came home and became a (laughs) psychotherapist this is the kind of thing that happens it's not uncommon
0: so i want to ask kind of a sensitive question then what do you think of cultural appropriation and this wave that's been coming up the last few years
1: i have to confess that there's times when i'm baffled because some people have accused me of being okay with it Because I said things, like I said earlier, about how these teachings had such a positive and big impact on America. And one of the ways it happens is Westerners became advocates of it. Mm -hmm. Some people would call that appropriation. Some people would call your podcast appropriation or, you know, any American daring to teach in the name of yoga or in the name of Indian philosophy. They would call it an inappropriate appropriation. But that's, you know, the world works that way. And what they often don't recognize is that people like me and thousands of others who are trained as yoga teachers, as meditation teachers, as administrators of yogic lineages, they were trained by the gurus. They were trained by Indians who thought it would be a very good idea for Americans to have this training and represent them in their own culture. Vivekananda made of some American swamis in the 1890s. Yogananda, the whole leadership of his organization was put into American hands of people that he trained. That's the way things happen. Now, there are some that take advantage for fame or fortune or what, arrogance or whatever, you know, might go too far and hold themselves up to be, you know, gurus in their own right. And that offends some people from India. But it is a fine line between cultural appropriation in the negative sense and adapting something that is you hold in great reverence and value very highly. When I go to India, I did speaking for American Veda when it came out. People love the fact that Americans have adopted these teachings. Mm. It means a lot to them, especially when a well-known American a celebrity, a movie star, or a great scientist, or something is found to be a advocate or values their ancient heritage, they consider it a great compliment. And so, you know, it depends on who you ask, whether something is appropriation in the negative sense or not. You have think, to deal with think, it case by case.
0: I think any of us that have read American Veda can see how much of your life force went into researching probably for decades <laughs>
1: unofficially um, for decades yes.
0: Yes. i mean i i think that can only for me be described as cultural appreciation and I, like well resentment.
1: certainly i feel that way and yeah, you know, i don't mean to say i'm accused of it a lot just people who naively say, how can this American write a Veda? No, I wasn't writing a Veda. That's just the title of the book. And most people know I hold these teachings in great reverence. I've taught courses for Hindu University of America, people of Indian descent, people who are of value their Hindu heritage and I teach courses there. I'm teaching a course on the autobiography of a yogi coming up, and the people in Yogananda's world and the other worlds I write about, the other lineages, they respect that I respect. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother, (laughs) but you know.
0: So we were talking at our Optimal State Yoga Therapy School in one of our lessons today about how it's a holiday for Ganesh, and how do we Um, reconcile you know we're doing yoga and yoga therapy and we are not hindu but yet if we don't mention that it's a holiday for ganesh it kind of feels like we're separating the the tree from the roots and i think we we feel confused about that
1: yes and if you want to bring yoga therapy into a public hospital or a teaching medical school setting, or as we've seen at certain places like Encinitas several years ago, into a public school, then there's going to be backlash. Is this religion? Is this a stealthy way of converting people to this foreign religion? This has been going on for a long time. The earliest gurus faced it. Then there's a question well, what do you mention? and if you do mention it how do you explain it do you say namaste in a yoga class do you put your hands together like that do you chant om do you not if you teach meditation do you do any kind of puja ceremony or do you mention the origins do you quote sacred texts these are interesting questions and everybody has to be sensitive to the culture and the environment, and at the same time, in my eyes, honor the roots of this and respect the roots of it. People will often see it as religion or feel threatened by it, but most people are not. You know, I was trained as a TM teacher at Transcendental Meditation in 1970 by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi at the height of the sort of post beatles wave of interest. And we ran into it a lot. Oh, this is Hinduism and you know, you're blah, blah, blah. And then we you adapt the language and sort of use less Sanskrit and use more scientific language. And you talk about the scientific research that have been done. And by now, of course, as you all know in yoga therapy world, thousands of studies have been done. And in the end, that's what counts evidence counts and the experience of people in their own lives count and they may not buy the philosophy they may never care to open a, a gita or chant mantras but if they're healthier and have a little more inner peace and they're happier then their minds open up. This has value, and so therefore, it could be okay. Just don't convert my kid.
0: (laughs) So just to summarize what I hear you saying is, it sounds to me like you said, it is okay if we adapt it to the needs of the people in front of us. We have to. We have to. And give credit where credit is due. So even if you use less Sanskrit in a hospital setting, or a public school, or you choose not to use the deities, we should still say, yes, this comes from India. And-
1: right. With Yoko the Church. caveat that in doing so, you don't dilute the teachings or distort them, that you hold them in your heart with respect. And you could still say, you know, this came from India, but I'm adapting. You don't have to say I'm adapting a language, you just do. It's not uncommon now. Look what the Buddhists have done with mindfulness practice. There's people all over the country, psychotherapists and everybody teaching mindfulness, using mindfulness. Very similar. The people were adapting yogic forms of meditation like TM and others. They adapt them to the setting and it helps people. And it's of value to people. And this is skillful means, upaya, as they say. But we have to be mindful of doing it without distorting or diluting. One of the things I said in American Veda, I think one of the important things for people to realize that so many of certain aspects of that are mainstream now, like meditation and asana practice, certain ideas like that we have divinity within us. That certain ideas of oneness and non-duality, these come from the East, and they've penetrated the culture in a big way. And I think it's important to let people know that, because if people understand the origins and the history, they're less likely to distort it, less likely to corrupt the essence of the teaching. So those would be my caveat. To do it carefully and do it skillfully. Reach the people in front of you. And the best examples of that are the gurus themselves. That's what they did when they came here. Oh, Americans can't sit cross-legged? Here's how to meditate in a chair. You know, that sort of thing. And it's as simple as that. This language seems strange and unfamiliar. There are English equivalents that we can use and they did it very skillfully and I think it's up to us to do that too and keep reminding people of the fullness of the traditional teachings you've been around the yoga world a long time so have I you know there are some of the most prominent yoga teachers who fully embrace the spiritual dimension of yoga who themselves got into it because they had back pain Mm -hmm. or you know their girlfriend got into it, so they did. And then they learned the fullness of it all.
0: Okay. The I have entry point. How so many is, hard questions for you, though, Phil? Okay. I think, I think we all walk around hoping that we are not distorting or corrupting and that we're doing it skillfully. And, you know, I look at someone like you and all the research you did for the American Veda book. Of course, you're doing it skillfully, but. What are the guidelines for the rest of us? And
1: I can screw up too, I'm sure. So we have to be grounded in the understanding of yoga, the fullness of it. We have to do our best to live it ourselves Mm -hmm. and to be mindful. And I think a big part of this is, and you're making a great contribution by having this podcast. It's communication with each other. One of the things that happens is people branch out on their own. There's an awful lot of independent spiritual teachers and yoga teachers with students online, in person, running retreats, running yoga studios, whatever it is, and they're their own silos. And there's a little danger in that because you don't get feedback. So I think, you know, gatherings like the annual yoga therapy conferences and others where people can meet and talk to each other about these things what have you learned take a look at my video let me see what yours are we can be a community of people who help each other do these things. Uh, Those who are teaching in lineages where there's a history of accountability and oversight and communication, they may have that built in, especially independent teachers. And I'm going to add to that because it's in the air of late. I'm on the board of the Association for Spiritual Integrity, and it was started because of the misbehavior of spiritual teachers, especially independent ones who don't have an institution or an organization to oversee. So we're talking about abusive behavior and financial and sexual especially. But the same thinking goes for just being a better teacher and a more authentic representative of these teachings, having peer support I think it's a very important thing. It's one of the reasons I I always like to speak to people who are training to be yoga teachers, are yoga teachers, because I think just even having this historical perspective that I've been sharing here helps make us all mindful of that we have a responsibility. It's a privilege to represent these teachings in these traditions. And I know, you know, people want to do it full time. They want to make a living at it and all that. And that's not necessarily easy. It's no easier to do that than make a living being a writer (laughs) or an artist. But we have to do that with integrity and not compromise, you know, too much for the sake of our success. And peer support, I think, is important.
0: Yeah. At the very least, like you said, we will all get feedback when we're getting mm-hmm. off track. And, you know, I love this idea of parampara, where you've got a teacher above you and students below you, and you're kind of navigating both of those continuously. So even if you're not in a formal lineage, maybe there's some kind of peer support and accountability in that type of situation
1: yes and everybody who is qualified to be a yoga teacher they have some lineage somewhere someone trained them and that person was trained by someone else and it all goes back to what i call the maha lineage you know that goes back to patanjali and the seers of the upanishads and all that and so we're part of that and it's an honor with that comes responsibility as well
0: i really only got to one of the two questions so far so i want to move to the second one (laughs) why was there such a vacuum that caused so many americans especially to just devour indian spirituality
1: yeah the history of western religion i'll leave to scholars and theologians and all that but it's pretty clear that somewhere along the way what we think of as the mystical teachings, the teachings that emphasize inner experience, Mm -hmm. the transformative, transcendent experiences that are present in all the world's religions. I mean, you look at Christianity and you see people like Meister Eckhart and John the Divine and Teresa of Avila and Hilary of Bingen, they are all like yogis. They're all like having the same kind of inner experience as the great sages of India and Buddhism and so forth. And you look at the originals, certain of the Hebrew prophets and the Jewish mystics, and you look at Jesus himself, and these were people talking about the inner life and of union with the divine. What does that mean? That means yoga in another language. And those got lost in all the political and egotistical and other forms of corruption over the centuries and those deep inner aspects. Houston Smith used to say there's an esoteric aspect of religion and an exoteric. The exoteric is the rituals, the dogma, the doctrines, you know, the arguments over history and all that. The esoteric is the inner experience that people have. And when you focus on that, you see unity and harmony and so forth. Somehow those got lost for the most part in the Western tradition or were restricted to very few people. So when they became available and a non-dogmatic, you know, one of the great features of the gurus who came here was they didn't say, "You must believe what I tell you, or you'll go to hell." They just said, "Here's what we've discovered. Think about it, and maybe you'll learn something from it." And all these ideas and philosophies and everything don't mean anything if you don't practice. And so the emphasis on the practice and the maintenance of methods like Hatha yoga and meditation practice and all that, that appealed to people. That's what changed people's lives. I mean, when I first got into it, yeah, I was turned on by the Eastern philosophy, but that's me. But mainly, the Eastern philosopher said, you have to learn how to meditate, so I did. And it changed my life, and there was the evidence, there was the proof. Americans are very pragmatic people. And so there was something missing for historical reasons, and some people said, please, tell me what you have to offer, Swami so-and-so, and I'll try it out you know, in the news every day, open-minded people welcoming immigrants and others wanting to shut the border. (laughs) Other people were telling the Swamis to go back to India where they came from because they're doing the devil's work. But the pragmatists always went out and something works. People come around. And that's what basically happened. What was missing was this inner dimension of the spiritual life and practices that unite mind and body and spirit. And of course, you know, where Hatha Yoga is concerned, people wanted inner peace, tranquility. In fact, you know, back in the day in the 70s when meditation first went mainstream because of the research that was done on it, some psychologists wrote a book about it called Tranquility Without Pills. And I always thought that's what people wanted.
0: And I love what you said that they gave us methods. I mean, I'm still kind of in awe of the fact that we have methods like do this, 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 and this, and it works.
1: And one of the things I so deeply appreciate about India and its culture, despite hundreds of years of colonization and the suppression of their own traditions, And the takeover of the educational systems and all those horrors somehow in all these ashrams in india these methods were maintained right and then the doors to the west were open eventually it's pretty extraordinary
0: that's the word i was thinking yeah all right so last question because we're running short on time what do you think the future holds
1: for you know every time I'm asked that Amy I said it was hard enough to write about the past
0: Mm.
1: in the future I don't know but all I can say is that unless you know barring global catastrophes barring the takeover by fundamentalists you know anything really crazy these trends will continue they'll continue because these practices the methods work They improve people's lives, they change people's lives, and that will continue to happen. We'll learn new things. There's always new things coming to us from the East. There's always new discoveries in science. We're sort of East meets West in the laboratories that study the effects of yogic practices. New forms of application will be found. You know when I wrote American Veda came out in 2010 yoga therapy was a new thing I don't even know if I mentioned it in my book after a while I realized that you know oh this is going to have the same trajectory as something like acupuncture and Ayurveda will have a similar trajectory it'll be resisted at first people will try it people will find value in it people will do research on it. studies will be published and next thing you know there'll be yoga therapists in hospitals helping people and that's what will happen and it has happened and it will continue I'm sure and I'll tell you another thing about this this phenomenon of people being spiritual but not religious Mm -hmm. which grows every time there's a new survey is a bigger percentage of people who identify that way and they're usually young The young don't want dogma. The young don't want exclusivity. They want inclusive teachings. They want spiritual teachings that are open and inclusive and non-dogmatic. So these teachings serve that purpose and they will continue to adapt them and then it'll take on forms we, you and I can't predict.
0: That's right. I have nieces and nephews totally into yogic and buddhist philosophy and meditation and i'm just yeah. like "Ooh, that's it the, the, the. yeah and look
1: when i was in college i didn't even come across this in the classroom it was among my friends when books were being passed around i mean even my own books are sometimes taught in classes so this is a big change
0: Well, thank you for this in-depth discussion. I really enjoyed it. I really wasn't sure where we were going to go with this. Are you satisfied with how this podcast turned out?
1: Oh, yeah. I always enjoy these conversations, and I am honored to be invited. And I hope something we said will have an impact on the listeners.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate it. Thank
1: you, Amy. Thanks for all the good work you do.
0: A big thank you to Phil Goldberg for taking the time to speak with us today. And I think, you know, where we finished this interview with this idea of exoteric versus esoteric, meaning, what inner experience are we having? And what are the methods and the techniques and the practices that help us to suffer less? to have more joy, more contentment, more harmony, more interconnection, more connection with others, that basically we were given these methods to be able to find that within. I think that's why yoga and yoga therapy are going to continue into the future combined with exactly what Phil said this is what the young people want. So it's only going to expand from here on out. And I have to tell a funny little story because my father's a Christian minister, and I have wanted something for about a year now. And I was laughing with him the other night. I'm like, hey, dad, you're a Christian minister. You're close to the big God up there could you pray a little bit? Could you put in a good word for me to get what I want? (laughs) I was kind of half joking, but my dad called me out on it. And he said, Amy, that is not how it works. You don't ask God. It's not like, you know, Burger King where you can, he didn't say Burger King, but it's what he was referring to. Like, you can't just order up and think, because I'm being a good Christian or whatever religion you want to insert there, that God is going to personally look down on me. And, you know, he and I have had this discussion so many times over the years about sporting events and is the this team going to win over that team? And anyway, basically he said, it doesn't work that way. And we both agreed that what's really happening inside of us when we commit ourselves to any religion or something like yoga, any kind of deep internal contemplation and reflection, is that we are actually changing from within to have more inner peace and more harmony and more tranquility. That whatever that external method that we're using is, is fine. Everybody has a different name and different steps for it. But as it changes us from the inside out with no external goal, the goal is having the internal experience that something magical happens. And we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if I'm going to get that thing that I wanted. We don't know if I'm going to be the one to win the ball game. And that might even be irrelevant that the name of the game is what's happening inside of me right now. And How am I feeling about that? And I love this quote from Phil Goldberg, and I'm going to end here. He says, Transcendence is a means, not an end. I'm going to leave you with that so that you can meditate on that. All right. Have a great day. A special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.